Welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. I'm Tani Levitt, and joined for the first time during the regular season by 24-7 Sports College Basketball writer Kevin Flaherty. Kevin, how you doing? Uh, doing really well, Tani. How are you doing? I'm glad I'm good. I'm glad also. I'm glad to have you on the show. And now we're going we're gonna to preview a bunch of these uh, Feast Week tournaments, and I'm really excited to get into that. But first, Kevin, what are your plans for Thanksgiving? Well, uh, we... Uh my, my parents are getting a little bit older, and, and so we wind up going to a, a restaurant here in Kansas City that's uh, it's called Hereford House that does a, a big Thanksgiving thing where you get prime rib and all sorts of stuff. So we wind up going there as a, as a family, and then, of course, you know, right after the meal, get uh, get back in, t- you know, put the seatbelt on and, and watch more college basketball. Love that. One group of people who will have a lot to think about and will need that family time over Thanksgiving are the Michigan State Spartans. We are uh, recording in the morning of day two of the Maui Invitational, and Michigan State lost last night in a shocking result to Virginia Tech. What happened? You know, it's funny because obviously, you know, you and I did the previews heading into the season, and one of the things that that you and I very specifically talked about was, hey, Michigan State is our number one team, but they're our number one team based on where we project them to be in March, not where we thought they would be at the start of the season. And there were a few different reasons for that. You know, obviously the injury to Joshua Langford is the one that that really jumps out. But they they also had, you know, some question marks, some young players were going to need to to kind of find their roles. The the big thing about Virginia Tech, I thought, is one Virginia Tech is so much better than everybody thought Virginia Tech would be at this point. You know, Mike White's done a tremendous job. I, I think a lot of people maybe overestimated how tough that rebuilding job would be because they didn't take into account Landers and Ollie, you know, Abisa Betty um, t- taking that step forward as well from last year when he was sort of the one returning starter from last year's team. But the biggest thing with Michigan State is that team just really struggles to score right now, Tony. And when mm-hmm. you have that, and when you have a, a smart coach like you have in Mike White, they really pack things in. And, you know, Michigan State's not shooting the ball all that well as a team. They don't have a lot of outside shooting options right now. And so when Cassius Winston only played 10 minutes in the first half, that was obviously a problem. They don't really have a secondary creator right now. And then when they did create open shots and when they weren't turning the ball over, trying to to kind of cut into that packed-in defense, they missed the open looks that they did have. And, and I think that that's something that could prove to be a problem for them for, for the foreseeable future now. You know, heading into the next month or two, it is something that Langford would conceivably help with if he does wind up getting healthy but that was uh, that was certainly a surprising result that even with Michigan State not being full speed I, I don't think a lot of people saw that one happening no absolutely not and and the, the crazy thing is I think Virginia Tech was uh, picked preseason to finish 14th in the ACC, obviously taking off the preseason number one team in the country. That's just crazy. And for me, on the offensive end for Michigan State, it really felt like when Cassius Winston wasn't initiating the offense, they didn't have anybody to set things in motion. And oftentimes in college, you don't have multiple facilitators on a team and then you fall back on the system. But when they were running through their motions and you could see them calling plays, it was like they were moving in half speed. And, and when you don't have that 
uh, that that play to fall back on, you know, well, we saw the result. And that's uh, Michigan State going out in the first round of the Maui Invitational. But those are just two of the six teams. So we've got BYU, Chaminade, Dayton, Georgia, Kansas, and UCLA also in the fold. And if it wasn't for Michigan State losing, the story of day one probably would have been Obi Toppin just absolutely dropping 25 points on Georgia. Where did that come from? You know, Obi Toppin was the guy that started to kind of get those reviews this summer. You know, when, when you look at some of the camps that, that these college kids are invited to, to kind of work on their game, show off their game, they play in pickup games and everything. You know, two of the names that, that really kind of surfaced from guys who were already in college, you know, not in this freshman class that was getting getting ready to play their first college games were Ryudoka Azubuki and Obi Toppin. And for very, very different reasons, you know, Yudoka Azubuki dropped a, quite a bit of weight for Kansas, you know, is, is looking a little bit more mobile uh, and, and, you know, was coming off that injury. And so to see him dominate everything within five feet of the basket, you know, you, you kind of maybe expected that, but Obi Toppin has really shown a, a terrific skill level. He, he's got the athleticism to take advantage of mismatches that he's able to get. He can take guys away from the basket. And when you look at it, not just what helps Dayton, but when you project him forward, you know, I, I believe Gary Parrish actually picked Obi Toppin as a first round pick. He's got a lot of first week. round buzz. Er- he's got earlier. a lot of first round buzz. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's uh so he's a guy that, uh, that is getting, you know, some buzz is maybe a first round pick and he keeps having more performances like that on that kind of stage. And when you look at what the NBA wants from its six foot eight, six foot nine guys, it's hard to, hard to look at him and say that he doesn't fill that role. And he was, he was unbelievable last night. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of that game, we had Anthony Edwards, and I was watching that game, and Obi Toppin just looked like he was in a different class from anybody else on the floor, and that's crazy when you consider he was going up against the number two recruit, obviously in last year's 24-7 composite. And, you know, Dayton was favored yesterday, but they but they blew Georgia out. Anthony Edwards only had six points, and his average dropped from 19 to 16 you know, and, and Lenardi has Georgia out, out of the tournament. Jerry Palm, first four out. They're 70th in Ken Palm. And we're going to have a, a, an Anthony Edwards as Ben Simmons situation come March. And I think this was a, uh, a disappointing reminder of that on national television, don't you think? Sure. And I think even more disappointing than Georgia losing, I, I think you brought up the point that, that Edwards just had those six points. And right now he's working a lot from his jump shot. You know, when, when you watched his other games so far this year, you know, when the jump shot has been clicking, Anthony Edwards has been clicking. And he's a guy that, you know, I really liked it as sort of the number one pick in, in this upcoming draft. Oh, wow. You know, I know Jerry Meyer, you know, liked, uh, likes Cole Anthony in that spot. I think Evan Daniels like James Wiseman in that spot. And so when you, when you look at, when you look at the different people across our network, you know, there's not really a consensus in terms of who that number one guy was going to be. And Edwards was my guy. And the reason why was because I felt like, you know, he had all the scoring tools. He has the, the physicality, but more than that, you know, he's shown the ability to create facilitate for others at different times and when you look at what the NBA is, you know, is really desiring in terms of having these lead guards, it's not necessarily a point guard anymore. It's just, hey, 
who is your best player and, and can he create for other people? Whether, you know, it, it is a, a more traditional point guard, whether it's somebody like Giannis Antetokounmpo who's doing that at, at six foot 11, you know, it, it, it really just is who your best player is. And, and so I, I really like him in, in that role moving forward right now. Like I said, I think in college so far, he hasn't really taken advantage uh, of, you know, the power and some of the things that, that you've seen a little bit more when you saw him out in the circuit and, and saw him in all-star games and different things like that. I think that's going to come, but, but certainly, you know, putting up six points in that situation, Ben Simmons's team, you know, when he was at LSU, they lost a lot of games where, you know, he would drop a, a 20, 12 and six on somebody and they'd lose anyway. And, you know, it, it would have been better. I, I think, had Georgia lost that game, but you were able to circle it and say, well, they lost that game, but Anthony Edwards still had 25 points. But but obviously that wasn't the case, and it's going to be back to the drawing board, not just for Georgia, but for him individually. Well, they will have an opportunity to play a good team in Michigan State. Um, so now so now it's time to pick a, pick a winner of the tournament. Today we've got Virginia Tech against Dayton. We've got Kansas against BYU, who really thumped UCLA last night start to finish. So who you got winning Maui Invitational? You know, I, I like Kansas to win the tournament. It, it really stinks that we were sort of robbed of, of that Kansas-Michigan State finale that I think everybody kind of circled when this bracket came out. Uh, but, but at the same time, I think the thing I wanted to see most from this tournament – you know, more than than Kansas or Michigan State winning out and getting into that game was I wanted to see how each team tried to find answers for their questions. And, and it's funny because Kansas had this 30-point win over Chaminade, certainly not unexpected, you know, when, it, when you draw the Division II team. Hey, you know what? The game started, it was 7-0 Chaminade. I, for was. me, that was, the big, that was the biggest surprise of the whole night. It was, it was, and it's funny because a few minutes later, Chaminade had 12 points and Devon Dotson had 12 points, and so it really got out of hand, you know, went from from Chaminade kind of feeling good about itself to out of hand in a hurry, but after the game, Bill Self said some really interesting things, and one of them was he was really frustrated with Dotson despite his 19 points, he didn't feel like he facilitated enough. He wound up with only one assist yesterday. But the big thing and the thing that I think, you know, you sort of circle and put the exclamation points behind is Self basically said our two big lineups just aren't working out for us. And and when you look at Kansas's strength, I I think the biggest thing that you circle in terms of raw talent is the fact that Kansas has three centers who would start just about anywhere in the country. When you talk about Yudoka Azubuki, David McCormick, and Silvio DeSosa, and the plan all along with those two big lineups was to take advantage of that and get two of those guys into the game at the same time and make sure you're not basically splitting 40 minutes between those three guys. And if those lineups aren't working, if Kansas has to to cut way back on those, I don't think they'll be eliminated entirely. But if Kansas starts playing more small ball around Yudoka Azubuki, Isaiah Moss is the guy that's that's really going to benefit uh, he, he's shooting, I think, 10 for 18 from three so far this year, around 55%, uh, and, and was an elite shooter out of Iowa before he transferred in. I think that that's what takes Kansas, not just to the Maui Invitational title, them playing more of more of those four guards or four out lineups 
around that center talent. But I think that that could sort of be the kick that you look at and say, well, Kansas lost to Duke in the opener, committed 28 turnovers, looked clunky at times with the two big lineups. This is maybe where Kansas hit starts to find its stride and become the the team that you look at and say, okay, this is legitimately a national title type contending team. And, and if Kansas is able to, to reach into that, and I, I think the Jayhawks will over the course of the next two games, then I do think Kansas wins the Maui Invitational as well. Interesting thing, I think, you know, the stat was out yesterday that Kansas has won, I think, five straight in-season tournaments. That's just crazy. Oh, actually, I was doing research uh, uh, yesterday. I didn't know when we were going to end up recording. And I saw Mick Cronin also has a very good uh, history of in-season tournaments. He won like three out of the past five years at Cincinnati. Obviously, UCLA no longer has the opportunity to win this year, but we'll see moving forward. And, and one last thing about Kansas, you know, they'll have an, another interesting challenge tonight with Jake Toulson from BYU. He was absolutely spectacular last night. And just having another perimeter player to kind of build their defensive scheme around will be uh, an interesting challenge for Kansas tonight. So let's move on to the Emerald Colts Classic, which I think is a very uh, unique uh, tournament because there are like eight teams involved. But there are two tiers of teams where you have Florida State, Tennessee, VCU, and Purdue, who are obviously the top tier. And then a group of four uh, lower level D1 schools. They play on-campus games, and then when they bring them to the Emerald Coast Classic itself, they kind of break it up. So I'm just going to focus for our purposes on on the top bracket with Florida State, Tennessee, VCU, and Purdue. And for me, this might be pound for pound the most uh, the most talented or, or best uh, tournament of all this week. Wouldn't you say so? Yeah, especially when you when you look at those four, I, I think the field um, for Atlantis, and we're going to talk about Atlantis obviously in a little bit, but I think the field for Atlantis overall is the most stacked. But when you're just talking about, hey, these are four teams, all of whom, you know, ha- have a case to be ranked or, or really, you know, sort of in that discussion. You know, I think Purdue is the team that's furthest away from being ranked right now. And yet Purdue's number 10 in Ken Palm. I was about to say. And and so when you're looking at that and you're looking at VCU being, you know, what VCU is this year, when you look at Florida State and just the way the Seminoles absolutely manhandled Florida earlier this year at Florida uh, after Florida State sort of disappointing opener against Pittsburgh and and Pittsburgh landed a big win last night against Kansas State so that's not necessarily as bad a loss as it appeared at the time and then Tennessee you know Rick Barnes before the season started was talking about you know hey our goal is just to be in the mix every year and, and you know, not necessarily, we don't necessarily think we're going to be as good as we were last year with Admiral Schofield and Grant Williams and Jordan bone and all those guys, but we have enough. That was his exact quote. I think he gave it to Andy Katz. We have enough basically to be a good team. And certainly when you look at what Tennessee's done early this year, when you look at the win over Washington in particular, a Washington team that beat a really good Baylor team, um, then, then you have to look at it and say, Rick Barnes looks like he has enough and Tennessee looks like it's got another good team. And so you're looking at four different teams that are either ranked now or probably will be ranked over the course of the season. And that's uh, that's a pretty good foursome right there. 
Yeah, so on Friday night, we've got Florida State versus Tennessee and then VCU versus Purdue. Who you got as a winner at the Emerald Coast Classic? You know, I, I like Florida State in these early oh, types yeah? of tournaments just because I, I, I think the Seminoles have so much length and they're so tough to play against when you aren't used to facing that kind of length. I know that it was at the end of last season, but you look at what they were able to do against Ja Morant, you know, they they really made him struggle when he got to the basket just because he wasn't used to facing that, that type of length or that type of system or that type of defensive intensity. And I think Florida State did the same thing to, to a young Florida team earlier, really sort of, you know, bowled them around it and, you know, they aren't great offensively, Florida State isn't, but they get just enough offense uh, for, from the guys they do have. They have a really good backcourt. Tennessee, I think, you know, is a team that's going to be really good this year. And I, I love Lamonte Turner, love Jordan Bowden next to him. They're getting great production from Eves Ponds and from, you know, John Fulkerson has, has stepped up. And that was sort of the one question mark that some people had was, is, is Tennessee going to get enough out of, out of their, out of those guys, you know, or in the post to sort of offset that backcourt. But uh, I think Tennessee may be even the second best team there. Unfortunately, they, they start off with that Florida state team. Uh, I think Florida state is going to come out of this thing, but, uh, it's funny because if you asked me, okay, which of these teams is going to be best heading into March uh, out of what we've seen, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if it were Purdue and Purdue is maybe the one team you would circle out of that group and say, they, they aren't quite at where the other teams are maybe right now. And so that's, that's what makes this such a fascinating group. Yeah. Well, for me personally, I'm, uh, I, I don't make picks because I'm not an expert, but I'm rooting for Purdue. It was a, a tough day for the Big Ten. And obviously, as a Maryland fan, I need the Big Ten to do well with Michigan State losing and Wisconsin losing and Ohio State playing a close one against Kent State. So I need some beef for the Big Ten. So I, I'm, I'm rooting for Purdue. And on a personal level, I always root against Florida State since they knocked Maryland out of the ACC tournament my freshman year at college. Hey, if, um, if Purdue starts getting to the free throw line, that's sort of the really weird thing about this year's team is they've got some guys, especially down low, that you would expect would just sort of turn out free throw attempts like crazy. And you look at the rest of Purdue's offense and, and the way that, you know, they they shoot the ball fairly well from the field. The three-point shot hasn't quite been there, but has been above D1 average right now. They don't turn the ball over. They do a terrific job grabbing offensive rebounds. They just don't get to the free throw line right now. And if they start doing that, this is a team that won't just have a good offense, but you're looking at potentially an elite offense in terms of efficiency. And, and I think, you know, when or if that happens, you know, you're looking at, at a Purdue team that's that's going to enter March, and it's, it's hard to bet against the consistency that Matt Painter has had there over the last several March Madnesses. All right, boiler up. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and on the other side, we'll hit the Battle for Atlantis, the Orlando Invitational, and Wooden Legacy. All right, and we're back right at it with the Battle for Atlantis which Kevin says is uh, top to bottom the most stacked of these tournaments. And for me, Battle for Atlantis, I always, uh, that for me is synonymous with Thanksgiving. So I'm, I'm really excited. You see that blue gym and you just know it's commercial break in the football game. It's a second TV. So really stacked teams. We've got Michigan, Iowa State, North Carolina, Alabama, Gonzaga, Southern Miss, Seton Hall, and Oregon. And for me, the the 
first storyline, and I know this isn't where you're going to go. I know it isn't. But for me, I look out and I see Seton Hall has an insane early season schedule. They already played Michigan State. They have the opportunity to go Oregon, Gonzaga, UNC here. They've got Maryland to come. They, uh, they've got Iowa State. And could we have a situation where they have been discounted seriously in March. They're looking at like a four or five seed when when talent-wise, they could be already a two or three seed, but they challenge themselves in the early season. Yeah, and it, it's funny you say that because, and I know this is just, this is going off topic and just jumping off, you know, the, the proverbial bridge with it, but... That's why we podcast, dude. <laughs> but uh, uh, that's the difference between... The net and the RPI, Tani, is, you know, the RPI, people used to load up their schedules, and it really rewarded you for taking on tougher teams more, you know, whatever the result was. You could take on on a top team and not fare so well, but as long as you played a lot of top teams, then your RPI was going to come out through the roof, and there were certain teams and certain programs, you know, Kansas, I feel like was number one in RPI for about 15 years straight. That's an exaggeration, but the, you know, they, they really scheduled to the RPI and, and it's interesting because the net, uh, I believe it's the NCAA evaluation tool is, is the full name of it really rewards you for just absolutely beating the pants off of somebody. And so it, it's a, it's a total sort of paradigm shift from what teams had previously been told, hey, this is this is what's going to help you out. And so all of a sudden, you know, you can invite the number 15 team over and, and win by one. You can invite the number 200 team over, beat them by 50. And because of the way the formula plays out, you're going to be more rewarded by beating that team by 50 than you are by, by beating the team that, you know, that is a lot better by that really small margin and so that, that's one of the things that I think people were kind of watching the net last year because it was the first year and they were trying to get a handle on okay what what does all this mumbo jumbo mean but remember there's one a margin of victory component and they cut it off after a certain point to say hey this doesn't encourage blowouts or whatever but the second part is they include an efficiency component of it so if you blow somebody out it you know it stands to reason your efficiency is going to be high in that game, right? And so you technically get double credit for blowing somebody out. Yes, you hit the margin of victory cap, but the other part is is you get you still get credit for you know the difference between a ten point win and a twenty five point win because your efficiency is going to reflect that. And so that's a really long way to say that. This schedule would have really helped Seton Hall with RPI. It's not going to help Seton Hall as much uh, with net, especially if Seton Hall winds up losing some of these games as we expect them to. I don't think a lot of people think that Seton Hall is just going to up and run the table through the slate. And, and we haven't even really gotten into the fact that the Big East you know, is looking really, really tough this year. And, and so when you add all of that together – uh, I think this is a team where you can look at them and from the eye test say, okay, this is this is probably a top three seed. I don't think that that's controversial to say that this is one of the top you know twelve or so teams in the country. Certainly a, a top four seed, one of the top sixteen or so teams in the country. Uh, but at the same time, when you when you look at that resume, I think you're going to see pretty. Uh, 
pretty clearly, you know, that Nett is not going to reward Seton Hall for the schedule, and it'll be interesting to see does Seton Hall get slid down a spot or two be because of this because of this tough schedule and and maybe some of those ensuing losses. Well, that'll be uh, something to watch over the course of the season. And of course, uh, without going down too much more of a rabbit hole, obviously the reason <laughs> that the net didn't want to have that strength of schedule component was so that the uh, teams in lower conferences weren't double punished for not playing in the Big 12 or not playing in the ACC. And that's something that they're going to continue to have to work out on the committee uh, in the years moving forward. So along with Seton Hall's Miles Powell, we've got Cole Anthony and Peyton Pritchard and and for me, you know, Battle for Atlantis could be an early referendum on Player of the Year. Yeah, there there are a number of guys that that are going to be in that discussion. You know, Tyrese Halliburton for Iowa State is maybe the best. You know, pure box score stat stuffer in the country. You know, he's the type of guy that it, it's not going to be unusual for him to approach or you know land triple doubles this year. Because he he's that type of guy as a six foot five point guard who can rebound, play defense, generate steals. You know, is a tremendous playmaker for for other guys. Cole Anthony, I think, is the guy that that you circle out of out of those guys and say this guy's probably going to have the best chance. But even as you say that, you know, Miles Powell was so brilliant in defeat against Michigan State and. He was that brilliant. Like days after that crazy injury, too. Yeah, exactly. And and so you put him on that stage where he shares a court with preseason national player of the year, you know, Cassius Winston. And I realize, you know, Winston is not necessarily the guy that is going to jump off a page. He's not going to knock down double clutch three pointers or, you know, or go for 45 points. and, And you look at it and say, oh my gosh, watch what Cassius Winston's doing right now. But at the same time to do that on that stage against another all America candidate, you know, that really, I think leapfrogged Powell from a guy that people who watch college basketball knew about and, you know, named as a preseason all American to a guy that you're already saying, okay, this guy's a postseason all American. Having said that, I think North Carolina so far this year, uh, Armando Bacot has stepped up um, the last couple games, but it's really been the Cole Anthony show, right? I mean, when you look at all the different things As it should be. That, that he's had to do, this isn't really your classically talented North Carolina team. And, and so if North Carolina winds up winning, say, 25 games and Cole Anthony continues with this level of production, not only is he going to be a first-team All-American, but he's going to be, you know, he's going to have a – a pretty good heads up for that uh, for that national player of the year spot as well. Yeah, I'm praying. I'm praying for Seton Hall and UNC in the finals. I just want to see that mano a mano. I want to see 30 points plus from Miles Powell and Cole Anthony. I, I want to see it all. But for me, the winner is going to be North Carolina. And, and that's just a, a root for narrative because I like Cole Anthony. I like his game and I, and I want him to get that attention. Who do you have coming out of Atlantis? You know, it's funny. If you were an odds maker, you would pick North Carolina, no doubt, because North Carolina would seem to have the easier route to the final if not nothing else. Mm-hmm. I, I do think Michigan is better than people are, are giving the Wolverines credit for, you know, and, and haven't really gotten a chance to to spring Franz Wagner in there yet. Um, that, that's going to improve that team as well. But I, I do think Carolina is likely to reach that title game. I think the title winner is going to come 
from the bottom part of the bracket. And, and I think that it's really tough for me to make that decision between Gonzaga, who, who probably has the easiest first-round matchup in, in Southern Miss, and whether it's going to come from, from Oregon, who I think will get by Seton Hall, even as good as Seton Hall is. Uh, I, I think, you know, at this point, it, it's probably going to be Gonzaga. That's a team that is so well-balanced for me. You know, they're, they haven't been perfect at times this year. They just got Killian Tilly back, which makes them so dangerous. I mean, how many how many teams have a six foot ten guy who shoots 48% from three, not for a year, but for his entire career? I mean, I mean that's just absurd when you have a guy <laughs> that tall that effective at shooting from the outside and you're playing him next to next to a guy in Philip Petrosev who's just scoring everything on the interior right now and has been one of the better post players I think in the country that backcourt uh, that transferred in from from North Texas when you're talking about Woolridge um, and uh, Texas A&M with Adnan Gilder really helped them out in terms of adding the experience in that backcourt that they were lacking. And, and Corey Kispert is, is a really good player too. And so I, I think Gonzaga gets through at the same time. It wouldn't surprise me a bit to see Gonzaga knocked out in that second round by Oregon. Oregon has a lot of pieces. I think that Dana Altman has the challenge of trying to figure out how all of those pieces fit together, especially once in Folly Dante you know, becomes eligible for the for the second semester. But, I'm sure he's not complaining. Yeah, but but when you but when you look at the talent on that roster, it, it's just it's off the charts, and, and they're doing some things really well right now. You know, they're they're defending pretty well. Their points are coming from different spots. You know, uh, when when you look at Anthony Mathis and the way that he has just shot the absolute snot out of the ball right now. You know, and, and all their other offensive options around him, it's not like you can sit on Mathis and say, okay, we aren't going to let Anthony Mathis beat us because they've got so many shooters. They've got so many guys that can pound the glass. They, they've got Peyton Pritchard running the show and doing a pretty good job of it. I thought he was really good against a really good backcourt in, in Houston. You know, I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Oregon comes out of this thing either, but I, my pick would be Gonzaga, and I do think that – whether it's Oregon or Gonzaga, I do think they top the Tar Heels in that uh, in that final game. Oh wow! Well, if Gonzaga is able to make it to that final game in the championship, there are a lot of NBA people who want to know: Is Killian Tilly, you know, fully recovered from that injury? Because if so, you know, he's going to be a dynamic player, potentially even a lottery pick. But you know, people want to know: Is is he fully recovered? Is he that forty eight percent three point shooter still after the injury? So we will see. You've got Gonzaga, I've got UNC, uh, and and no matter what, we get to enjoy. So the last the last two tournaments uh, I want to preview are the Orlando Invitational and Wooden Legacy, and Maryland and Arizona are are pretty heavy favorites in those two tournaments. Not huge, not particularly stacked fields. Maryland's biggest challenge is probably going to be Marquette, USC, Temple, Davidson, Fairfield, Texas A&M, and Harvard are in that field. And Arizona, I think their challenge might be Providence. They're also facing Pepperdine, Penn, Long Beach State, Charleston, UCF, and Wake Forest. So. For, for you, Kevin, who's most likely to upset each of these teams and, and what can these two favorites uh, stand to gain from the early, uh, the early season tournament where they're not going up against, you know, serious tournament contenders? 
You know, I think USC is the most interesting challenge for me against Maryland. And the reason why is Maryland doesn't shoot the ball all that well or hasn't shot the ball all that well early not on this since, season. Not since Turgeon got there. <laughs> and when you and when you look at USC and you look at that front court, you know, they brought in two five-star players. Onyeka Okongwu is really playing like one uh, right now. He's been one of the best freshmen in the entire country. And, and when you look at the fact that a guy as talented as Isaiah Mobley is, is probably their third best, you know, big man. I, I think that this is one of the teams that can match up really well against Maryland and potentially even better Maryland in the post. And so when you look at that um, and you look at, you know, potentially USC owning the paint in that game or, or at least having the advantage in the paint in that game, that's that's going to make life tough and it's going to put pressure on Maryland to make outside shots. I still think Maryland would win that game. And I really like this Maryland team. But, but I do think that USC is sort of the team that you look at and, and highlight and say that this is the team that I want to see Maryland play because I want to see how Maryland would adjust in a situation where, you know, Stick Smith isn't necessarily the runaway best post player. And, you know, Anthony Cowan doesn't necessarily have – you know, a free lane to the rim and, and that group of wings that Maryland has, they don't necessarily have, you know, free runs in, into the paint all, when they slash, you know? And so that, that, that would be the matchup that I think I would be really interested to, to see in that tournament. Like I said, I still think Maryland would win, but I think it would give you sort of a look at what an NCAA tournament game and atmosphere could be like in terms of, you know, a, a slower pace game where, you know, the two teams really have to grind out possessions and, and force Maryland to maybe do some things that, that Maryland's a little uncomfortable with. Obviously, I'd love to see Marquette go as, as far as it could go just because, you know, Marcus Howard is a walking 40 piece if he wants to be. <laughs> but, but, at, but at the same time, I, I think that USC is the team of that group that, that would maybe give Maryland you know, sort of that biggest challenge. And, you know, more than that would would maybe ask some questions that Maryland would have a chance to answer. Absolutely. To, just to your point, I feel like every time Maryland posts something on social media, it's a it's a play in the lane. It's a dunk. <laughs> it's it's an interior pass. And, and USC definitely would present a challenge to that. And obviously, anytime Sticks goes up against someone with beef, he you know he it's a real challenge because he still is as much as he's put on weight. He's still a skinny guy. So let, let's let's slide over to a wooden legacy. I think you and I both would pick Maryland to win the Orlando Invitational. Um, who's most likely in your mind to upset Arizona and what do they stand to prove in this tournament? Gosh, it's tough. You know, Providence would be the pick, you know, I, I'm right there with you on that one, but I don't know that Providence presents the challenge to Arizona that USC could present to, um, to Maryland. And, and I think that, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that has been so impressive so far, um, uh, with Arizona has been that that team's really hit the ground running. And even with the dismissal this past week of Devonir Dutrieve, who, you know, a lot of people thought was maybe going to be one of the team's better players. You know, Sean Miller had kind of talked him up as a starter and a guy who was the team's most improved player losing him hurts. And yet when you watch Arizona play, there's so much to like there. You know, the freshmen have been so good. 
uh, it's been a really dynamic team. Nico Mannion has played an unbelievable point guard. Zeke Naji, you know, is one of the best freshman big men in, in the country. If it's not crazy just, that like Zeke just, Naji has just like taken over for Josh Green immediately, immediately, and it's it's been fun to watch too because you know a lot of times, a lot of times people just go by by recruiting rankings and don't necessarily look at situations. But I'll, I'll say in this case. Yes, Zeke had a chance to walk into a situation where he could play immediately and have an opportunity, but I think all of us kind of circled Arizona and looked at Josh Green and Nico Mannion and said, oh my gosh, when they get out in fast breaks, Josh Green is going to score 15 points a game just off of getting out and running, um, and, and that hasn't necessarily been the case just yet. Now, he, he's been pretty good, and I think that he's going to continue to prove, continue to improve, excuse me, over the course of the season, but uh, I really, um, really like this Arizona team. They've probably been a little bit better than than I thought they would be. Interesting thing about this bracket, though, when you look at Providence and, and say, okay, Providence seems to be, you know, maybe the clear-cut second-best team in this bracket, would you say? Uh, but they've already played Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania beat them. And so... <laughs> And Pennsylvania beat them at Providence, and Pennsylvania is a potential second-round matchup for Arizona, and so that that's something that that's kind of fun, you know. Obviously, transitive property and, and all of that, but <laughs> but but Pennsylvania and Providence did play in a game, and it was you know it was Saturday, so it wasn't you know a long time ago or whatever else. And Penn was better than Providence on Providence's home court, and so. You know, may, maybe we're sleeping on Penn a little bit. I still like that Providence team. Uh, I think Ed Cooley's got some really nice pieces there. You know, Alpha Diallo, obviously, David Duke, Luan Pipkins. You know, they, they've got a really nice roster. And, and I think that they have a really good chance when you look at who they're matched up with to, to reach that title game and maybe, you know, challenge Arizona there. But uh, but don't sleep on that Penn team. I guess that that would be kind of an interesting, you know, second round matchup for Arizona. Just as sort of a a sneaky team, and and a lot of times, you know, if we're being honest about it, when you're playing a team like that, your team doesn't necessarily get all the way up because they don't see the danger, even when the coach does. And the coach says to him, "Look, you've got to take Penn seriously. Penn is very dangerous." And they look and they say, "Well, it's Penn." And then next thing you know, you're in a game with four minutes left and it's a three-point game and you're saying, my gosh, you know, we're going to have to scramble to win this thing. And and so I am interested to see uh, to see if Penn does get by UCF and, and Arizona does beat Pepperdine, what that second-round matchup will look like. All right. Well, shout-out shout out to my Ivies. All my, all my Ivy League friends at home will be <laughs> playing football on Friday. It's a true story. But uh, okay, well, I, I, as as much as uh, as as you might say, Penn uh, can present a challenge to Arizona. They're they're one ten in Ken Palm. I'll take Arizona all day. And if you haven't had a chance to watch Arizona, do yourself a favor. I know the Pac twelve network is is hard to access. Find a way to watch Arizona while they're on ESPN this week. Games tip off for Wooden Legacy on on Thursday afternoon. Now those those are the those are the tournaments that I wanted to preview, but there are a couple that already finished up: Charleston Classic and the Cayman Island Classic, and, and I want to circle back to Florida because you and, and most other analysts had them top five going into the season, and then they drop 
a game to Florida State. They drop a game to UConn, and and you know they fall out of the top twenty-five entirely. And yet, Mike White, Coach Mike White, just said, you know, we're shooting poorly. That's that's what it's boiling down to. And then all of a sudden, they come out and win this tournament, beat Xavier on a bad shooting night. Maybe this was just a bad shooting blip for Florida. You know, the thing that worries me most about Florida it isn't the shooting. Because I think the shooting, you know, I think it could be not a year-long concern. That's the way to – but I think it could be hit or miss this year. I don't think that – it's something where we're going to look at the end of the year and say, oh, Florida is a, an awful shooting team. But I do think that Florida, if it wants to reach its NCAA tournament goals, uh, they're going to have to win a game in some round where the ball just isn't going in the basket. The thing that scares me is the fact that Florida is athletic, you know, especially when you look at, you know, Scotty Lewis, you're playing Keontae Johnson at the four, et cetera. And yet this is a team that is playing the 329th fastest pace in college basketball. And when you look at how young this team is, when you look at how athletic this team is, I don't know right now that they're a great example of a team that is going to be able to grind things out in a half court through execution, at least not right now. And, and even if they get better on that front over the course of the year, and Andrew Nemhart is a really good point guard, he's still a point guard that I think is at his best when he's playing in the open court. And so the thing that, that kind of shocks me about this Florida team is I feel like you have the pieces – to really get out and run with this group and really, you know, they, they've got a terrific defense. They're going to get stops. When you get stops, grab the ball and go. And I know that, you know, this is the sort of thing where, where there are coaches who don't want their teams to run, et cetera. But I, I really think that Florida is harming itself offensively by not taking advantage of fast breaks, by not getting out and running and, and, when they play two point guards out there with Trey Mann alongside Nemhard, you know, not getting out and running and getting open shots that way. And I, I think that's the thing that worries me about this team. It's not, it's not necessarily the shooting. It's will this team figure out that, Hey, you know, it's probably not in our best interest to play this slow because we have guys that can get out and run it. And I think that's really the best formula for this team. And so if they don't get out and run, if they wind up continuing to play at this kind of pace where you could lose to UConn 62 to 59, uh, the, then that's my worry with this team is that they aren't going to reach a spot as high as a lot of us, including myself projected them because they aren't going to play to their strengths. Mm -hmm. uh, w one last thing. I, I will say that in their game against Xavier, I felt that they were at their best. Actually, when Quest Glover, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name was right, was on the floor. He just brought so much energy, and they were. They were much more up-tempo. They were, like, almost a bit lethargic. Like, the only person who was comfortable in that slow place was Nemhart, and I felt like he could really get to his spots, but everybody else kind of was tentative in that slow pace. And not everybody can be Virginia and have very few possessions but still be very efficient. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that, on that pace of play for Florida. And uh, before we get out of here, let's just talk about Baylor-Villanova. That was an awesome, awesome game. Two teams that were just tremendously polished and a ton of three-pointers. That's the kind of college basketball I love to see. What were your thoughts on that game? 
It, it was the best game of the year so far. You know, Absolutely. I mean, there, there are some I'm sure that I haven't seen, but but at the same time, you know, we, when you looked at the stage, when you looked at the two teams playing, how fluidly the game moved, you know, yes. both teams, there was just tremendous shot making on both sides. I mean, Baylor won the game and averaged, you know, 1.4 points per possession, which is just outrageous. I mean, that that's ridiculous to to put that into perspective Villanova lost with 1.26 points for possession and that would put Villanova if not having the very best offense in the country if they did that over the course of you know the five games or whatever they played so far six games um, that would put them in the top you know two or three spots and so vanilla or vanilla Villanova operated at an absolutely elite level offensively and still, you know, didn't have the shot making that, that Baylor did in that game. And, you know, yes, Villanova is going to have to embrace defense a little more and get better on that side of the ball. And you could, you could certainly make that case. But I thought even more than that, I thought you had some really talented offensive players making really talented offensive plays. And at this point in the season, it's so rare to see. I mean, Tony, you watch as much college basketball as anybody so often these early season matchups are just absolute clunkers. Where teams, how many times do I have to watch someone throw a pass to nobody? Right, like the passing in Baylor and Villanova was like so on point. You know, they've had games for maybe you know a few weeks now, but you'd think that like the passing of all things is like the last to arrive. You know, people are able to go one on one immediately at the beginning of the season, but the passing was just immaculate. It, it was beautiful, and, and it was. It was one of those things that, that when you were watching, you realized how special the game was. You know, it wasn't just after you sat back and, you know, and kicked your, your feet up with a pipe afterwards that, that you realized that, you know, hey, that was a pretty good, pretty good game that I just watched. It was, it was in the moment. And I realized, you know, Baylor kind of pulled away over that final stretch. You know, Baylor scored 30 points over the final 10 minutes of that, of that game to, to pull that thing out. And, and so when, when you look at that Baylor team, you know, Baylor took the loss to, uh, took the loss to Washington, but that was a game that, that Baylor kind of led the whole way, even had, I believe a double digit lead in before Washington kind of came back and Baylor didn't make some so hot plays down the stretch and everything. Baylor closed this one out. And when you look at the backcourt that Baylor has, it, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, Jared Butler is a terrific shooter. You know, Macy Oteague is another great shooter and scorer. Davion Mitchell is sort of the the distributor speed guy, the the guy who transferred in from from Auburn, and a, and a player like Devonte Bandu. And I know we were talking about with Kansas, you know, how those other big men could start just about anywhere across the country. There aren't a whole lot of teams across the country that Devontae Bandu wouldn't be one of their starting guards. And he's coming off the bench for Baylor with them already starting those other three guards. And so when you project Baylor on in, into March, you know, those are the kinds of guards that, that can erase things. They can erase mistakes. They can get you out of bad situations. They can do what they did against Villanova and just flat make shots better than you do. And, and so uh, I thought it was really encouraging for Baylor. It was encouraging for Villanova to show up after Villanova had had such an awful outing against Ohio State 
where they were kind of beaten in every single category across the board. Uh, I do really like Villanova move, moving forward. I, I'm still not down on this team. I think that it's a group that's going to continue to get better over the course of the season. But early this year, and maybe even more than in other years, it just feels like almost every top game ha- has been kind of clunky and, and, you know, and hasn't been well played and there have been turnovers and, you know, and even in games where we've seen brilliant performances like Miles Powell against Michigan State, you know, it it was more like you said, the the one-on-one type, like, you know, hey, I'm going to cross this guy over and knock in a three over the top of him as opposed to seeing, you know, great ball movement and fluidity of offense. And this, this game really, you know, had that fluidity. It had great pace and it was, it was one of those things where even if you didn't have a rooting interest in Baylor or Villanova, you had no problem sitting down and dedicating a couple hours of your life to watching that thing. A hundred percent. Well, that's going to do it. My computer's telling me it's about to die, so we better get out of here before that happens. Thank you so much, Kevin. Have a terrific Thanksgiving. And for those of you at home, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you like what you're hearing, uh, do us a favor and give a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I'd add that to the list of things that I am thankful for. Uh, have a fantastic holiday to our listeners. Enjoy the college basketball, uh, and we'll see you next time.